0: Welcome to episode 38 of Wild Utah, the podcast of the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. I'm Dave Pacheco. In this episode, we're talking about the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument Resource Management Plan, or RMP. Originally proclaimed by President Clinton in 1996, the almost 2 million acre monument was slashed in half under former President Trump in 2017. Under the direction of industry-backed agency heads, his administration wiped out the existing monument management plan and instilled their own version, favoring other land uses over conservation, science, and native ecosystems. It's been close to a year since President Biden restored the monument to its original boundaries, and it's time for his administration to rewrite the Trump-era plan and re-emphasize scientific discovery and conservation as the primary purpose of the monument. SUA will of course fully participate in the planning process, ensuring the Bureau of Land Management prioritizes and manages the vast wild character that dominates the monument as the national treasure it is. Our guest is SUA Wildlands attorney Kaya Marienfeld. Kaya is heading up SUA's official comments and she's joining us today to discuss SUA's priorities during this important planning process in non-legal terms, she'll explain the process and help listeners understand how to effectively engage in making the final plan a guiding document we can all be proud of. Kaya, thanks for joining us again.
1: Oh boy, thank you, Dave. <laughs> it's an auspicious honor.
0: Well, I think you're building on your record as the Suez staffer with the most podcast appearances, uh, which of course speaks highly to your versatility and value. So let's start out, Kaya. Explain for us exactly what we're talking about when we say Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument is rewriting and updating its resource management plan, and explain why it's such an important document that the agency gets right.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. So. Past listeners, new listeners may or may not know that the Bureau of Land Management, they have a congressional statute that sort of rules everything that they do with public lands management, with the BLM managed lands, Um, and that's called the Federal Land Policy Management Act, or FLIPMA, you might hear us say. And FLIPMA really is the guiding document that tells them what they can do, how they can do it, what their responsibilities are. And one of those responsibilities under FLIPMA is to have a land management plan specific to different geographic areas, different regions that they manage. So typically in the state of Utah, you have Bureau of Land Management lands divided into different field offices. Like there is a field office in Fillmore that manages a lot of what's the west desert of the state. There's a field office in St. George that manages that whole southwestern corner of BLM lands, and there is a field office specifically for the management of Grand Staircase. Because it is a monument and because it's so big, that that field office is is tasked with the management of the monument itself, and you have that all over the state. So what this is, is saying, you know, for every field office or every management unit, as it were here, there is a document that has specifics in it that are specific to that area. So the Moab Field Office Management Plan is different from the Kanab Field Office Management Plan in other places around the state. And then Grand Staircase has its own, or any BLM monument has its own, because it has its own special specific management provisions, rules and regulations, guiding principles, the reason it was established, all of that is different enough that monuments have their own plan because they have that sort of heightened management standard. And for Grand Staircase, it's really important because this is what the agency has to rely on when they're making any sort of decision about what can or can't happen on the lands that they manage within this unit, making policy recommendations, everything from looking if they want to establish a new developed campsite or a new hiking trail or to reclaim unauthorized motorized routes, all of these things are governed by that resource management plan that's specific. And here it would be the monument management plan. So it's sort of like the day-to-day handbook and rules for that area. So if, if they want to propose a project, let's say putting in new infrastructure for recreation, whether it's a parking lot, a trailhead, something like that, a pit toilet, they have to look to that management plan to say, is this something we're authorized to do? Is this something we called for, provided for, we planned for um, and what are our parameters on that? So it's sort of the day-to-day nitty-gritty of what they will use from here on out in order to make those decisions on the land. And it's really important for that reason. As a lawyer, it's really important to, to SUA and to other members of the public too, because that's also what we look at to say, hey, you're making a decision here your management plan says something different, you need to follow that plan. Legally, you have to follow what your plan says. So obviously drafting that plan is a really critical part because if if something important isn't in there, we can't rely on that later. And the same with the, with the land managers at the BLM.
0: Okay, well, that's a great summary. Um, I, I wanna ask you, what is the relationship between the Monuments Management Plan that you just described and the proclamation the president reads that essentially creates the monument like Biden did last year when he restored the original boundaries.
1: Yeah. And that's a really important thing to think about because it's a monument. I think that's a big difference between, like I said, like the Moab field office and everything managed by the BLM there and Grand Staircase. The proclamation, in this case, we have three proclamations. We have the original Clinton proclamation from 1996 when the monument was first established over two decades ago. We have the proclamation from President Trump that significantly downsized the monument and attempted to sort of change a lot of why it was established, you know, add some other things in there that aren't the original reasons for the monument being designated. And then we have the President Biden proclamation from last year, which reestablished the original size of the monument and made sure that there was some enhanced focus on things that weren't really a big focus the first time around for example you know there's mention of tribes and indigenous ties to the landscape in a way that wasn't as straightforward the first time around which i think is a good change so those proclamations are the things that highlight why the monument was established in the first place what are those special resources in need of this heightened status this heightened protection And so what those are called, according to the Antiquities Act, which is the law that gives the president the power to establish monuments, those are called monument objects. So like, for example, in the Clinton Proclamation in 1996, the original proclamation, monument objects were the unique geologic landscape in the staircase, which is why it's called the staircase. Of course, you have all these sort of steps in geologic time coming from way up on the plateau all the way down to the Grand Canyon, essentially or you have relict plant communities. That's something that's specifically mentioned in the monument. Paleontological resources, we all know, are a huge reason the monument was established. There's a complete wealth of not even yet discovered paleontological resources in the monument. So all of those things are specifically highlighted in the proclamation as a reason it was designated, which means in the management plan, there has to be specific management criteria addressing how to best protect those resources that are the reason the monument was established.
0: That makes a lot more sense. Um, Thanks for clarifying that. Before we jump into the details of what you and SUA want to see adopted in this plan, give us a brief overview of the planning process. Uh, You know, we're just at the beginning stages right now and we won't see a final plan signed uh, possibly uh, until a couple more years pass. Uh, describe for us like the steps of how this gets done. I mean, this is obviously a time-consuming thing. Uh, and tell us when you're doing that. At which steps does the public have the opportunity to provide meaningful input or comment on the the plan?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's many steps along the way. This process is governed by the National Environmental Policy Act, which is all about public participation and open consideration of planning and decision-making with federal agencies. So the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, as you might hear it called, we use a lot of acronyms, it has a set process when an agency is drafting an environmental impact statement, which is what they're doing. It's the sort of the largest version of analysis, it's always what's done for a resource management plan um, or a plan revision, because that is such a big process that's so important. And so they have to be really careful to look at all the different impacts um, that their decision might have, good and bad, and then choose their plan alternatives accordingly. So for this process, the Bureau of Land Management or Department of Interior published in the Federal Register back in July, at the end of July, a notice that they were beginning their 60-day public scoping period which is the first opportunity that the public has to really engage formally in this planning process so that started at the end of july 60 days from july 29th is september 22nd which is when this sort of first period ends uh, this scoping period and scoping is really big and really important because you can think of it as the agency knows the big idea of what they're trying to do but they're not entirely sure what that's going to look like yet. And so now is the time where the public can give sort of the most broad input on a variety of things. What the BLM did here, which is really good with the plan process and with something this large, is actually just at the end of last week, they also released a document that's really thorough that's called Analysis of the Management Situation, or the AMS, which says, here's all the issues we're looking at here are the things that we're considering, here are some of the problems, here are some of the things we wanna do. And so the public can actually look at that document and respond to that document and say, hey, I noticed you don't have this in here. We know this is gonna be a really big concern. You should account for it in the management plan and here's how. So we're in that process right now and it's really nice to have that AMS document to sort of refer to so you're not just sort of shooting in the dark. Like you know that they're considering you know, what do we do about visual resources? What do we do about nighttime skies? What do we do about soundscapes on the monument, which is a really important thing that has not yet been in a management plan, um, which I'm excited will hopefully be in the next one. And then after that period ends, the Bureau and the agency continues working on preparing their really massive document, which would be the draft resource management plan and the draft environmental impact statement, which analyzes all those alternatives. But after that's prepared, they will release it to the public and that will be something that looks a lot like the management plan will look. It'll be formatted that way. It'll have different chapters on different issues. It'll have mapping, it'll have discussion and those potential sort of specific rules that will be in the final document then there'll be a 90-day public comment period again on that draft document. So that's the next time where it's really, really important for the public to weigh in and say, hey, I know that this is your preferred rule or your preferred alternative for this plan. I don't think this is protective enough of this specific monument object. You need to reevaluate this. Here's some information, here's why. Or saying things like, I noticed this issue still is not in here, You guys should work really hard to include this so there's two very major opportunities for the public to be involved one is right now during that scoping period and one is after the draft eis and resource management plan is involved and then after all that's done you know the agency will consider it that's i think the most time that will be the longest time period to go by and then they will release their their proposed final document And that has a bunch of reviews it needs to go into with the governor. There's a consistency review with the state. And then there'll be a a protest period um, when the final document is out. That's a 30-day period that that time frame has to run before that new document starts being effective. But after that 30-day period, the document will be approved, the record of decision will be signed, and then that will be the new governing plan for the monument. So the one that it's being governed under right now we'll have no bearing anymore. It'll be totally done. So it's kind of a strange process. It's a long process. I think for obvious reasons, there's a lot of things they need to look at and consider and focus on. But I do know that they are trying really hard to be efficient with the planning process. And our engagement is with that in mind. (laughs) You know, we're not trying to slow down the process. We want a new management plan. The plan that was written under the Trump administration is very much not protective of the resources in the monument in any way, um, in big important ways. So, the sooner that we have a better plan in place, the better. And I know that the agency are working really hard to get things done within a pretty short time period, which is under two years.
0: Well, you know, thanks for explaining that sometimes hard to understand process and putting it into terms that we can understand here. You know, I know you touched on this just a little bit in, in your answer about process, but I want you to elaborate a little bit more on the comments that SUA is going to submit on behalf of our 14,000 members. What are we going to focus on in those comments? What do we want to see prioritized and emphasized in the plan? I mean, Can you just generally outline for listeners what kind of comments Sue is going to be making?
1: yeah absolutely. We are very fortunate to have a lot of really good partners, other conservation organization partners that have worked with us on these plan process revisions many many times uh over many decades, <laughs> including during the last grand staircase plan revision, which was only three years ago, which is kind of crazy to think about. You know we met and we were like, Hey, here we are again. let's Do it again, you know? (laughs) So luckily, we're not going it alone, which I think is really great because I think every different organization brings different expertise to the table. Like for SUA, our main focus, of course, is protecting wilderness quality lands in our wilderness proposal, which is almost all of the monument. So my focus is on potential management issues and concerns that would have the potential to impact that wilderness character in those areas. So wilderness study areas, lands with wilderness characteristic, really important, undisturbed ecosystems that don't have a bunch of roads running through them, which which is most of the monument. Honestly, I mean, it is a huge, intact, pristine landscape, which I think is why it was designated the way it was. It was not just a, oh, here's this archaeological site. Here's this paleontological site. It was saying this whole ecosystem is an object in need of a protection So you have this big area, which is big for a reason, and I think it complies with the Antiquities Act because the object is that ecosystem and what it provides, which is a lot of things. So I think our comments really focus on things that we foresee having the potential to harm wilderness character in those areas. Some of those things are, for example, and if you've heard me talk on this podcast before, you will not be surprised, vegetation manipulation and management. So... Ecosystem restoration, vegetation removal, things like chaining and mastication, herbicides, mechanical treatment of pinyon pine and juniper forest, sagebrush, grassland ecosystems, things like that. That is something that we have seen consistently be a threat to wilderness character. And so that's a big focus of my engagement on the plan is giving feedback to the BLM, giving research, providing studies, providing science, providing everything I can to show, hey, this practice, if not done in this specific way, has the potential to irreparably harm all of these things in the proclamation that many presidents at this point have said are objects in need of specific protection. And this is a really good point because a lot of these things were in the original management plan that came out after the first time the monument was proclaimed by President Clinton. So the first plan was finalized right at the end of 1999 in 2000. And that plan was actually kind of unique and groundbreaking for its time. Not only was Grand Staircase the first monument managed by the BLM instead of another agency like the Park Service. Um, Traditionally, if BLM lands were made into a monument, management of that monument would be given over to the Park Service or to another agency that had more experience with those sort of heightened protection lands. But Grand Staircase very specifically was not. It was said, "This is a monument. It's on BLM land, and the BLM is going to manage it." That's the first time that happened. So, you know, that plan was pretty unique and pretty dynamic, and honestly, did a really good job protecting those monument objects and resources for 20 years until it was shrunk by President Trump, and then a new plan was put in place. So a lot of our recommendations are gonna be saying, hey, you had this really great guidance the first time around, don't reinvent the wheel. Why don't you do this? Like for example, in the original plan, it said due to the opportunity for harm to monument objects like vegetation, biological soil crust, um, archeological resources, you BLM are not allowed to use chaining as a vegetation removal practice on living pinyon pine and juniper forest. So that was something that was very clear in the original plan that was in place for a very specific reason. And so pushing for things like that to be in the new plan, I think, is something that we are going to work really hard on. Management of visual resources, dark skies, soundscapes, all of those things are really important for protecting wilderness quality lands. And those are all things we're going to engage on. Whereas we don't work as closely on livestock grazing, for instance. And so some of our partner organizations who do focus really heavily on livestock grazing and do have that as their area of expertise, they're going to be handling the bulk of the comments addressing that issue. So that's sort of how we're divvying it up. And I think, you know, we certainly have our own focus, but it's complementary to a lot of other organizations. So we're really fortunate to be able to have those partners in this effort because we're going to end up with you know, hundreds of pages of comments that we're providing during the scoping period and mapping and photos and research and documentation, which would be a little overwhelming if it was just us going it alone, I think. So we're really fortunate to have good friends who are on the same page with who can help work on those issues, including tribal members. There's been a lot of effort by some of our conservation partners and friends who are either members of tribes with history and connection to this landscape, or who have close connections, who are trying really hard to make sure that those tribal interests are more engaged in this process this time around. I think that's a hugely important thing that was missing the first time. And so it's great that you have that sort of proactive engagement with the public. And then I think the Bureau of Land Management is actually trying really hard to really proactively reach out to tribal entities and get their input on this process, which is really good.
0: You know, Kaya, on this podcast, we've covered the subject of recreation and our take on how these agencies can better manage the way that most people experience wild public places like the monument here. I'm talking about weekend visitors, vacationers, uh, just drive-throughs. And most importantly, in the Grand Staircase area, because it's so spread out and because there's only a couple of developed campgrounds, like where people can pull off and camp, can you talk a little bit about what SUA would like to see in terms of the monument going forward uh, on how it would manage the way that a lot of people experience the monument, the recreation aspect?
1: Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head, Dave. I think that is going to be something where For this plan process, as compared to the original one back in the late 90s, there is a lot of potential for really good change. And I think it's also where I, and a lot of people who are also concerned about this issue are pretty wary about what we might see in a new plan. You know, recreation, visitation has exploded everywhere on public lands, particularly during the pandemic. Grand staircase was no different. You had people who've never been there who were traveling there and camping and hiking and doing all sorts of stuff in the monument that they hadn't before which is great we certainly support people getting out into public lands and getting to experience these wonderful places but you know as you've heard on the podcast if you've you know read on our website and our newsletter human-powered non-motorized recreation can be a very detrimental thing to the landscape if it's not managed properly And so, yes, that's another big issue that we are engaging very closely on during this plan revision process, because there is great potential for changes that would allow a much larger impact on the landscape, which very notably is not a monument for recreation. And I think that's something that we are certainly going to Make sure we're reminding not just the Bureau of Land Management, but other interests that have a hand in this planning process, like the state of Utah, for example, who has every intent of promoting the heck out of this place in order to get more money in tourism revenue. You know, that's what the state does best. They take tax dollars from renting a hotel room or campground fees or at the gas pump, and they put that money towards advertising more tourism. Like that's state law here in utah so trying to walk that line and making sure that the plan itself has enough specific language in it that will protect the things that actually are the reason the monument was established and not prioritize recreation visitation human uses recreation uses over those other objects that actually are the reason the monument was established like this isn't a recreation monument and neither is bear's ears for that matter you know you hear that all the time but i think it's important because there is such an interest in visitation and you obviously have to account for that but just making sure that you're not saying hey we have to cram more people here because there's more of a desire to visit well no unfortunately you have to put limitations on that sometimes if it has the potential I think, the very high potential and the very realistic potential to harm the landscape if it's not done right. So a really good way of managing this, which is what was in the original monument management plan from the late 90s, from 2000, is the monument was divvied up geographically into zones. And those management zones were sort of the big umbrella over what individual small-scale decisions could be made. So there was the passage zone, which is like around main roads and thoroughfares and like hole in the rock road for example if you've been to the monument before is this big sort of artery that goes through the the sort of eastern side of the monument down from the town of Escalani all the way down to Glen Canyon and that's a main thoroughfare and there's pit toilets there's places to pull off there's trailheads there's parking areas whereas some of the other places out in the more remote part of the monument don't have that kind of expected visitation and also can't handle the same kind of visitation. And so that would be the outback zone is what it was called in the original plan. And the group size limit for, you know, a camping group or a visiting group was smaller in the outback zone than it was in the passage zone, for example. And so that zoned approach, I think, is a really honestly, a really good way to do it. And I'm, you know, our comments in regards to recreation are going to strongly encourage the BLM to, again, not throw out something good that they had in the past, but to say, hey, this worked, this was a pretty good way to do this. Maybe this zoned approach for recreation is good. So then in the passage zone, for example, that would be a place where if you're seeing higher visitation, you could put in a new pit toilet or a new parking area or a new trailhead or even a developed campground but somewhere else that you had determined wasn't appropriate for that because it's a little more sensitive, it's more important to sort of keep the ecosystem intact would not be a place where the agency could put some more of that recreation infrastructure. So I think that's something that we're really going to be recommending that they do. And I'm hopeful that they will. I think there are people in the Bureau of land management who are in the field office who are working locally, who are actually the ones writing this plan who understand that that approach is really good because it says, Here's these big general areas where you have some big guiding principles. And then those smaller specific decisions made later on, you don't have to make those right now. You don't have to know where every parking area or trailhead or campground is going to be for the next three decades right now. But you have an idea of where generally might be appropriate. And then the public can expect that too. If that's in place, we're not going to be surprised when... You know, someone wants to put a campground somewhere or a trailhead somewhere the same way that we know they're not gonna be putting, grading and paving a road into the way, 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 way back country where there's really no vegetation at this point. So it helps understand, I think, what can be expected. And I think that's really good. And that's a big reason for the management plan is it gives some sort of certainty for future decisions that they haven't even contemplated making yet.
0: Okay, so Kaya, explain to us that you know although SUE is going to submit comments on behalf of our members, I'm just kind of retouch for us again here on why it's important that individuals get involved themselves, and, and remind us again of that next deadline that's coming up soon. When can people submit their scoping comments?
1: Yeah, so again, that deadline right now as it stands is the end of this month. So September 27th is when the agency would like to have scoping comments in by. Scoping is a little interesting because I think technically you can certainly provide input throughout the planning process, but they're much more likely to be considered. It's much more likely to matter if you have them in by that deadline, because that's when the agency says, okay, we got our input. Now let's start reviewing it and start making decisions and drafting the plan draft. So September 27th is the end of the scoping period. So if you have your comments in by then, you're good to go. And I think it's really important that the public does weigh in. You know, we don't want to overwhelm the agency, but I think in a way, it's important that they do hear that the majority of people who care about this place want it to be protected for the reasons it was established as a monument. There are going to be a lot of public comments that are saying, you know, I think it's really important that we have enough roads and we have enough developed areas in the monument because I like to recreate there and I like to take my camper and I like to take my dirt bike, you know, stuff like that, which we and a lot of our members do too. But I think the ability to say, I am a public lands user. I do enjoy recreating on public lands. That said, I understand that I can't do everything everywhere and that this monument was established for a very specific purpose and it wasn't so I can go wherever I want all the time in any circumstance. I think those kind of comments are really valuable saying I love this landscape. I visit it. It's important to me. It's special. And I understand that you need some sort of heightened protection for these really fragile, really irreplaceable resources, like the paleontological resources, or these incredible little native plant communities that don't exist anywhere else in the whole world, except in two square miles in Grand Staircase, you know, things like that, I think are really critical. And the more individual input they get, I think the more it helps bolster those decisions that the agency has to make, which is to do the right thing to follow the law. Because I think there's a lot of pressure. Not to, you know, I'll be honest. So the more input the agency has sort of bolstering good decision making and good planning and making maybe sometimes tough decisions, I think the easier it is for them to do that. And certainly the easier it is for the Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, and for this administration, the Biden administration, to really stand firm in those decisions when they're getting a lot of pressure to kind of just open the monument up as a free for all to recreation, to giant group sizes, to develop campgrounds, to paving all the roads, to putting a visitor center every two miles. There's an amazing visitor center. There's a couple already. You know, I think staffing those and having all the resources you have there is amazing. But understanding that like this isn't a national park, this isn't an area where the primary reason is what humans get out of it right now. So I think just the more people can weigh in on that, the better it is. And certainly highlighting other issues that matter to you. You know, if you care about grazing management, if you care about, you know, water quality management, night skies, soundscapes, you know, the quiet, you have these huge pockets of like some of the most quiet places in the whole lower 48 are in Grand Staircase. Studies have shown, which is really neat. And what does the agency need to do to preserve that? I think, are all things that they would really welcome input from the public on.
0: Okay, well, Kaya, thank you so much for giving us all that information and uh, providing listeners an easy route to get involved. And to make it even easier, uh, we're including a link to the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument resource management plan portal along with the podcast here so you can just click that link that you see and we'll also provide that information on SUA's website at suwa.org. Kaya thanks so much for uh, coming back on being our uh, repeat guest Uh, we know you cover a lot of topics for us Uh, we really appreciate that and I'm sure our listeners appreciate your expertise and being able to help them understand it in terms they can uh, they can relate to so we really appreciate your time today Kaya.
1: Yeah,
0: thanks. Thanks, Dave. It's my pleasure. Wild Utah is recorded at SUA's main office in Salt Lake City on equipment purchased through the generosity of our members. SUA is primarily member funded. Over 90% of our revenue comes directly from people who care about protecting Southern Utah's Red Rock Country. We're proud of that because it keeps our voice independent. If you'd like to help protect Wild Utah today, please head to SUA.org and click the donate button. We appreciate your support. Wild Utah's theme music, What's Worth, is composed by Moab singer-songwriter, Haley Noel Austin. Our interlude music, Chuck's Guitar, is by Larry Pattis. Post-studio editing and production is by Laura Borshevsky To stay informed about current events at SUA, visit us at SUA.org and click on Get Involved to discover how you can join the movement to protect Wild Utah. To receive information and alerts via text message, text the word Utah to 52886. Again, text the word Utah to the number 52886. Follow the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance on Facebook, on Twitter at Southern UT Wild, and on Instagram and TikTok at Protect Wild Utah. And be sure to subscribe to the Wild Utah podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. Visit SUA.org forward slash podcast for additional ways to subscribe and to access our archive of previous episodes. On behalf of SUA, I'm Dave Pacheco. Thanks for taking the time to listen. We hope you can join us for the next episode of Wild Utah.